Well, good morning. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Allen, for the opportunity to preach in chapel. It's always an honor to, to deliver God's word. If you have your Bible, if you would, turn to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17, and we're going to look at two chapters this morning. I'm going to attempt to make it to the end of chapter 18, Judges 17 and 18. I'm not sure if anyone else here shares this fascination with me, but since childhood, I've been somewhat fascinated with with cults. I remember as a young boy sitting on the couch and my parents were watching a special. I'm not sure why they allowed me to do this as a child, but they were watching a special on on, uh, Jonestown in in South uh, America and remember just being struck by the charisma at the time of of Jim Jones and some of the bizarre beliefs that he uh, uh, espoused and then the tragedy that took place there and just, just being caught up in the wonder of how that could happen and why people would follow him, but, but it captivated my attention. And of course, there are other cults over the last 50 years or so, the Heaven's Gate cult who believe they could escape the body and, and achieve some higher level, or the, the Branch Davidians in Waco. There's a mini-series made recently on that particular group, and just always been fascinated by them. But one of the things that, that cults remind us is of the innate human desire to worship God along with the inevitable distortion of worshiping God when it's done apart from his word. So the innate desire to worship God paired with the inevitable distortion of worship when we attempt to worship God apart from how he is prescribed in his word. And so cults use religious language and concepts. They often cite scripture. They engage in religious practices and ceremonies and rituals. But underneath all of that is typically sin and corruption and deviation ultimately from scripture. And so you have leaders who are amassing personal wealth. They're involved in deviant sexual behavior. They abuse their position of leadership and coerce their members. They proclaim extreme views that don't line up with Scripture. And ultimately, what they end up with is a religion of their own making. And essentially, that's what we see happen in Judges 17 and 18. Micah, a wandering Levite, and the tribe of Dan attempt to worship God, but they do so apart from or distinct from how God has told them to worship, and they end up crafting a religion of their own making. We see the innate desire to worship and the inevitable distortion of God's worship when done apart from Scripture. And so there are religious artifacts, religious language, and religious people, but none of the religious activity is governed by the Word of God. And so it's essentially what I would call twisted Religion, And so I want to study Judges 17 and 18 this morning, and I want to identify or note three marks of twisted religion. So if you have your Bible, if you would stand with me to honor God's word, Judges chapter 17, beginning in verse number one. It says, Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith, 
who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. Then the narrator inserts this comment. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 7, there was a young man from Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem and Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And he made, as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. You can be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we thank you this morning for your word, your word that is inspired, your word that is inerrant, your word that is profitable. I pray that as we look at Judges 17 and 18 and we see these, these distinguishing characteristics of, or marks of, of distorted religion, God, I pray that we would examine our own hearts and our own lives. I pray that we would make sure that we are worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love for us. Thank you for the gospel, his death, resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, and his promise returned. And we love him. We ask all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, the period of the judges is obviously a dark time. You read these chapters and you think, what is Micah thinking? What is this Levite thinking? We get into chapter 18 and you think, what is this Danite thinking? These are, these are dark days in the book of Judges. But the truth is, if you go back and read, starting in chapter 1, the first 16 chapters aren't any better, and the last three chapters are even worse, right? So this entire period is a dark and sinful period in Israel's history. At the beginning of the book of Judges, in chapter 2, we, we, we read this cycle. The author lays out the cycle of the book of Judges, and it's a four-step cycle. First, Israel commits idolatry. They fall into sin, and they worship idols. Step number two, God allows other other uh, nations to, to oppress them, the, the Philistines, the Moabites. Step number three, they cry out for deliverance. They ask God to rescue them. And step number four, God raises up a judge to, to rescue them. Now, of course, the people inevitably fall back into idolatry, and the cycle starts all over again. And honestly, it could be described not just as a cycle, but as a spiral, because the judges seem to get worse and worse. The deliverance they provide seems to get less and less, until you end up at the back end of Judges, 17 through 21, with a nation that is, that is spiritually, religiously bankrupt, and morally bankrupt. And in this particular narrative, 17 and 18, we see that religion during this time period in Israel's history has become so distorted and so twisted it is essentially unrecognizable. The people say religious things and they do religious things, but they live for themselves and they do ultimately what's right in their own eyes. 
And I just want to say that I think this particular text and these particular truths are important for us this morning because we live in a context and we attend an institution that is confessional, that is grounded on the word of God, and we read religious books and we have religious conversations and we do religious things. But if we're not careful, we can find our hearts far from God going through the motions and practicing our own form of distorted religion. And so I want to look here at Judges 17 and 18. I want to look at these three marks of twisted religion. I want to encourage you to examine your own heart to see if there's any hint of these things in your own life. And then at the end, I want to point you towards Jesus, who is the ultimate solution. So so the first thing I want to point out here, the first mark of twisted religion is people who talk about God, but don't obey him. People who talk about God, but they don't obey him. In chapter 17, there's there's a decent amount of God talk. I don't know if you notice this or not, but Micah's mother blesses Micah in the name of the Lord in verse number two. Micah's mother dedicates the silver to the Lord in verse number three. In verse number 13, at the end, Micah says, now I know that the Lord will bless me because I have a Levite as a priest. So they're quick to use the Lord's name here, but what they're not quick to do is obey him. We see Micah in verse number two, making a confession. Verse number one introduces him. He's Micah from the hill country of Ephraim. And in verse number two, we're told that he stole silver from his mother. He says, mom, the 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. Now, what's interesting is in the previous narrative, the Samson narrative, 1,100 pieces of silver is the exact amount that Delilah sells out Samson for. Now, some scholars argue that this is actually Delilah. Micah's mom is Delilah. I'm not sure that a case can be made for that, but I do think a case can be made that Micah is a Delilah-type figure. That here's Delilah, who's a Philistine, who betrays an Israelite for a task, for a job. She actually earns that money, even though it's a deceitful uh, wage. And then you have Micah, who betrays not an enemy, but he betrays a family member, and he does it not by earning it, but by stealing it. And so I think the, the, the author wants us to see that Micah is actually worse than Delilah. So here's Micah. He steals the silver from his mother, And he confesses to the crime, not because he's convicted, but because he's scared. He's afraid that his mother's uttered a curse, and he's superstitious. He's religious enough to think, maybe there's something to this curse. I better confess so that nothing bad happens to me. It's motivated by selfishness. And so ultimately, he confesses. And the crazy thing to me is that his mother blesses him. I mean, no discipline, no correction, just a blessing. Now, let me state the obvious. This would not have happened in my home growing up. I would not have received a blessing. I would have received the belt, right? But, but this mother, right, this, this mother who is responsible to teach and to train her son lets him off the hook. And what we see in the next verse is that the reason Micah is the way he is is likely because his mother is the way she is. It says in verse number three, 
His mom says, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord. I wish she would have stopped there. But she goes on to say, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord. Why? To make a graven image and a molten image. And so she dedicates the silver, but she dedicates it to make an idol. Now, these are Israelites. These are supposed to be God-fearing people. They're part of the covenant people of God. And here she is dedicating this silver to make an idol. And so Micah and his mother are, are idolaters. We see that later on, that he has a shrine in his house, an ephod, household idols. He and his mom are idolaters. And so they're good at talking about God. They're not good at obeying God. And this, this is somewhat disconnected, but let me just say this. If you have children, let me just encourage you to teach and train your children. Deuteronomy 6 called moms and dads to train their children up, to teach them about God. And here's a mother who's failed to do that, and her son turns out to be a thief and an idolater. When I was, when I was in student ministry, I used to tell my parents at meetings that our student ministry motto was the same as Home Depot. You can do it, we can help. Right? It's your job to disciple them and to train them. We're here to help you and encourage you, but ultimately, you need to own that. If you have children, train them up. Teach them to love Jesus. Read the Bible with them. Pray over them. Take them to church. Disciple your children. This mom doesn't do that. She dedicates the silver to make an idol. <coughs> Verse 4 says that they take that silver to a silversmith who makes him into a graven image and a molten image, and they're in the house of Micah. And in verse 5, we, we're told the man Micah has a shrine, an ephod, household idols. He consecrates one of his sons that he might become his priest. So Micah's mom doesn't train him. Micah doesn't clearly doesn't train his son because he consecrates one of his sons as an illegitimate priest in his own little household shrine. And so from generation to generation to generation, this idolatry is passed down. And just so, just so we understand what, what's going on here, the narrator says, in those days, there is no king. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Right? There, there's no direction. There's no leadership. What they're doing is clearly not approved by God, but it is right in their own eyes. And so he's got his own shrine, his own idol. He, he's like Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. Here's his religion, and it's all my own. And one of the interesting things I was studying this passage, I came across an article uh, where they, the author made the argument that his name was Michael Wilson. He makes the argument that in the first 16 chapters of Judges, you hear this refrain, the sons of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see that at the beginning of every major uh, narrative with the prominent judges. And so Six times in Judges, the children of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then you get into the, to the back part of Judges, 17 through 21. There was no king. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And he argues that essentially this is the reason that idolatry was so prevalent in the period of the Judges. And why they couldn't shake it was because what God saw as evil, they saw as right. God says this idolatry is evil, and they said, no, this is right. This is okay. God is okay with this, and they refused to turn from their idolatry. As a side note, the article was titled, 
as you like it, the idolatry of Micah and the Danites. And I feel like that was a missed opportunity. It should have been titled, As You Wish, in honor of Wesley from the Princess Bride. It wasn't, but anyways, it was a good, was a good article. And I think he makes a convincing case that the point here is Israel is committed to idolatry because it seems right to them. But back to the thrust here. Micah, his mom, and ultimately the Levite are good at religious activity and religious conversation, but they're not good at obeying God. Incredibly, Micah and his mom are able to break over half of the Ten Commandments in six verses. Six verses. Micah covets the silver, breaks the tenth commandment, steals the silver, breaks the eighth commandment, steals the silver from his mom, dishonoring her, fifth commandment. His mother vows to dedicate all the silver to God, but only dedicates 200 pieces, breaking the ninth commandment. She dedicates the silver to make an idol, breaking the second commandment, and then it's in their house, and they presumably worship it, breaking the first commandment. So they break... Six of the Ten Commandments in the first section, and they do it all without leaving their own house. Now, here's where it gets personal. There are a lot of professing Christians who do similar things today, they attend church services. They use religious language. They participate in religious activities. They lift up religious prayers. But in many ways, in many areas of their life, they are not living in obedience to God. Maybe, maybe this describes you. You look good on the outside, very religious, very respectable, but in so many ways, you are, you are ignoring, disregarding, disobeying the word of God. God calls us to give generously and cheerfully, but we're selfish and stingy. God calls us to share the gospel, but we're afraid or insecure and deafeningly silent. God calls us to grow by studying his word and by praying, but we waste our time on trivial things. God calls us to be faithful to our spouses and to pursue sexual holiness, but we look at pornography and we commit adultery. God calls us to control our tongues, but we lie, we gossip, and we harm others with our tongue. We're religious on the outside. We're engaged in religious conversations and activities, but our lives and our hearts are full of sin. Our lips drip with religious platitudes, but our lives reveal a heart of disobedience. If that's you, you're practicing a twisted religion. God's desire is for his people to pursue holiness, not to live in persistent unrepentant sin. So the first sign, the first mark of twisted religion is our ability to talk about God and engage in religious activities without actually following him in obedience. The second mark is that we use God, but we do not serve him. So we talk about God, but we don't obey him. We use him for our own means, but we don't actually serve him. As this chapter progresses, what becomes clear to us is that Micah has no intention of serving or worshiping God as God has designed. What he wants to do is use God as a means to an end, his own pleasure and blessings. And so when we attempt to use God to get what we want rather than to serve him because he's worthy, it's a sure sign that our worship has been distorted. 
Verse 7, we're introduced to a young man from Bethlehem in Judah. He's from the family of, of Judah. He's a Levite. He's staying there, and he goes looking for a home. Got to find a home, traveling to find a home. And he comes across Micah. And Micah asks him, where, where do you come from? And he says in verse number nine, I'm a, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I may find a place. And Micah can barely believe his luck. He's got to be thinking, I've got a shrine. I've got idols. I've got an ephod. My son, he's kind of a makeshift priest. But this, this guy, he's a Levite. Surely God will honor me if I can get him to stay. And so Micah makes him an offer that he can't refuse. Micah says, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. <coughs> and so at this point, the Levite can barely believe his luck. Micah's looking for someone to run his shrine. The Levite's looking for a place to stay, and it's a match. Not made in heaven, but it's a match. And so they link up. And he agrees, it says in verses 11 and 12, he goes in, he lives with the, the man, and the young man becomes to him, to Micah, like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. And one of the great ironies here is that the Levites were sanctioned by God to serve his priest after they defended his honor after the golden calf incident. And so one of those descendants who rises to the challenge after the golden calf and defends the glory of God, finds himself in a shrine helping Micah worship an idol. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And so here's this Levite who agrees to this. And of course we ask, well, why would he agree to this? What could cause this Levite to abandon his commitment to God? And the truth is just a little bit of stuff. A little bit of silver, a little bit of clothes, a roof over his head. It only takes the promise of a few material possessions to get him to sell out. Now, there's a sermon within a sermon here for pastors and missionaries and ministry leaders. This Levite sells out for materialism, but what would it take for you to sell out? What would it take for, for you to sell out? Money? An inappropriate relationship? A desire to be accepted? a bigger platform or following. Here's this Levite who, here, he takes the money. Later on, when the Danites come by in chapter 18, he tells them what they want to hear. He's a people pleaser that doesn't deliver the word of God. And then later on, when the Danites come back through and they offer him a bigger position, a bigger platform, a bigger congregation, if you will, off he goes running. What would it take for you to sell out? This Levite is a sellout. He's using God here just for material wealth. And Micah's not any better. Micah consecrates the priest, but his, his logic is, well, God's going to bless me now. I've got a Levite. Now, forget the fact he's disobeyed the word of God. Right? He's ignored the command of Deuteronomy chapter 12 to tear down the idols, to burn them up, and to not do what's right in your own eyes, Deuteronomy 12. He's ignored all of that, but he thinks, well, now I've got a Levite. God will surely bless me. Verse 13, now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing that I have a Levite as a priest. What's Micah interested in? He's not interested in worshiping God. He's not interested in serving God. He's not interested in obeying God. What he's interested in is what God can give him. God will prosper me. God will bless me. 
And so Micah's gone through everything that he's gone through because he wants what God can give. God is a means to an end rather than the end, and he's trying to manipulate God to ensure that God is good to him. And again, I'm I'm reminded that we're not immune to this temptation. We can find ourselves thinking, if I do this, God will bless me. God's going to hook me up. If I do these things, and surely God will bless me. If I, if I give, God's going to bless my finances. If I go to college class, uh, Spurgeon students, God's going to bring me my spouse. If I take this ministry position, God is going to, going to explode it. God's going to give me everything that I want. And we find ourselves trying to manipulate an angle. But if we find ourselves doing X in hopes that God will do Y, we've embraced a twisted religion. We're seeking to use God rather than to serve God. And the problem is that a God who can be manipulated and used is not the true God, and it's a God that cannot save, a God that cannot rescue, a God that cannot redeem. And that's exactly what Micah finds out in Judges chapter 18. So so the last thing here, the last mark of twisted religion, I'm going to move through chapter 18 pretty quickly here, is we consult God, we inquire of God, but we don't actually listen to him. So here's Micah and his mom and this Levite in chapter 17. They use religious language, but they're not interested in obeying God. They've got a shrine, religious trinkets. They're, go, they're going through the motions, but they're not really serving him. They're using him for their own prosperity and their own benefit. Then here in chapter 18, you have this tribe of Danites who enter the picture, and we're told in verse 1, they're seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. (coughs) Excuse me. For until that day, an inheritance had not been allocated to them as a possession among the tribes. So their inheritance has not been allocated. It means it has not fallen to them because they're unable to conquer their allotted land. Judges 134 tells us that they were defeated by the Amorites, and they're driven into the hill country, so they they don't conquer conquer the land that God has allocated to them. And so instead of persisting and doing what God has said and striving to take that land, they begin to look elsewhere. Well, if we can't do what God has said here, let's go and do something else. And so they send out five spies to check the land out. In verse number two, it says, so the sons of Dan sent their family from their family, five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshtel to spy out the land and to search it. And they said, go search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah and lodged there. Now, what's interesting about this is it calls to mind other spy narratives in the Old Testament, but in close proximity in similar language in Joshua chapter two, Joshua sends two spies to Jericho. And you remember where those spies end up at? They end up at the house of Rahab, the prostitute. Here, five spies are sent out, and where do they end up? They end up at the house of Micah, the religious prostitute, the one who's committing spiritual harlotry. And they get here, and they come across Micah, and the the text says that they recognize this Levite uh, because of his voice. They recognize the voice of the young man. A lot of scholars say that, that he had some type of distinct accent. I like to imagine him saying, howdy, y'all. I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's what it sounds like in my mind. And uh, they recognize him. They ask him a string of questions. They say, who brought you here? 
Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What do you have here? It reminds me of my kids when they were toddlers. They'd ask a bunch of questions. You know, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? Why is your breath smell? Just boom, 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 100 questions, like back to back to back. They're, they're asking him all these questions. And the Levite, <coughs> excuse me, explains what Micah's done. And they asked the Levite to, to inquire of God for us. Verse number five, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the way on which we are going has the Lord's approval. Now, this seems super spiritual. Ask God if this is right. The problem is that God has already given them land. He's already given them instructions. They don't want, ultimately, God to tell them what they should do. Really, what they want God to do is approve what they've already decided to do. They've already made up their mind that they're, they're not going to take the land that God has given them. They're looking for new land. So really, they want God's approval, not God's direction. One of the marks of twisted religion is when we don't want God to tell us what to do. We don't want his guidance. We don't want his word. We just want him to affirm the decisions we've already made. And this tribe has made up their mind. We are going to take the land. And I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but we can find ourselves doing the same types of things. God, God, give us the green light. Let me do this. God, this is a church I need to pastor. God, this is a guy or girl I need to marry. God, this is a ministry I need to lead. God, this is a book contract I need to sign. God, this is the fill in the blank that I have to have. And we just want God to give us the rubber stamp. And the crazy thing is that God had already told them what to do. But the priest says, go in peace. Right? He's a, again, he's a sellout, sermon within a sermon. He tells them what they want to hear and sends them on their way. <coughs> and they go, and they spy out the land, the Bible says. They depart. They come to Laish in verse number 7. The people are secure. So they go back in verse number 8. They deliver the report to their, to their brothers in verse number 9. They say, the land is perfect. Let's go take it. 600 men gather up arms, and they head off to take this land that God has not given them. But on the way there, they stop by the house of Micah. And in verse number 14, the spies tell the 600 warriors, do you know that there are in these houses an ephod and household idols and a graven image and a molten image? Now, therefore, consider what you should do. And that's not, he's, not, he's not really asking them a question. Hey, think about what you should do. He's telling them, go take these things. And so they go in, and it says, <coughs> it says 600 armed Danites stand at the gate while the spies go in and take the idols. When you talk about intimidating, 600 armed soldiers at the gate, the spies go in, the Levite tries to put up a little bit of fight. He says, hey, what are you doing here? And they, they, they put their hand over his mouth, basically, and uh, they, they tell him, be silent, put your hand over your mouth, come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be the priest to a tribe and a family in Israel. And again, he's a sellout. His heart was glad. Verse number 20, he takes the ephod and the household gods and the graven image and went among the people. And so he, he's gone. The idols are gone. Off they go to Laish. And, and Micah, when he discovers this, he chases after them. And they turn around and they say to him, Micah's chasing them, chasing his God. He's going, get this, he's going after his God to rescue his God. That's backwards, man. We don't rescue our God. Our God rescues us. 
And so he's going to rescue his God, and they turn around and they say, what's the matter with you that you have assembled together? Apparently, Micah has gathered some of his neighbors. He goes to track down these 600 warriors, and they say, well, what's the matter? What's bothering you? And what a condescending question. They've taken his religious trinkets. They've taken his Levite that he loved like a son, and he feels like he has nothing left. And he says, you've taken away my gods that I made, and the priest, you've gone away. And he says, what do I have besides? And what a sad statement. You took my gods. You took my, my fake priest. I have absolutely nothing left. Now, ultimately, this is what happens when we worship gods of our own making. In the end, they leave us empty. They let us down and leave us to disappointed every time. And whatever you make into your God, whatever that idol is in your life, money, pleasure, health, power, the thing that you put so much energy into and you find so much identity in, that thing will ultimately let you down. But the Danites, they don't feel sorry for Mike at all. There's no sympathy. They, they say this to him. In verse number 25, do not let your voice be heard among us or else fierce men will fall upon you and you will lose your life with the lives of your household. That's pretty intense. I feel like I've said similar things to, the, to my kids in the car on a long road trip. Do not let your voice be heard among, among you or bad things are going to happen, right? Uh, but, but it's pretty intense. They basically tell them, be quiet or we'll kill you, essentially. And so he knows, man, I've lost this battle. He gives up. He goes back home. And the Danites... They go to Laish, they slaughter the people, they rename the city Dan, they set up this shrine, and they worship it, and the Bible says the entire time the house of God is in Shiloh. And the people of God are worshiping in Shiloh according to his laws and his commands the entire time, and you have this, this rogue tribe, you have this pagan Micah, you have this sellout priests who are doing their own thing all the while the house of God and true worship is taking place at Shiloh. Everything that's going on here in this sideshow is evidence of twisted religion. And so Judges 17 and 18 clearly reveals the distorted, twisted religion of the nation of Israel during the time of the judges. The people talk about God, but they don't obey him. They use God, but they don't serve him. And they consult God, but they don't listen to him. And as I've tried to argue, I think there are times in our own lives where we can find ourselves doing the same thing. And the million dollar question is, how do we avoid practicing twisted religion? How do we keep this from happening to us where we look good on the outside and we go through the religious motions, but our heart is far from God? How do we keep from doing what's right in our own eyes? And I think the answer is found in the fourfold refrain in the conclusion in the book of Judges, because we're told in 17.6 and 18.1, in 19.1, and in Judges 21.25, that in those days, there was no king in Israel. I think that's at least part of the reason that Israel struggled so much during this time. Now, ultimately, they would have a king, and some of their kings led them into idolatry. So the solution was a king, but it wasn't just any king. They needed a king who would teach God's law, who would embody God's law and who would imitate or emulate God's law for them to follow. What they needed, they didn't have this in the Old Testament. They had some good kings, a lot of bad kings, but no 
perfect kings. What they needed was a divine king to perfectly obey the law, to perfectly teach the law, and to perfectly enable his people to keep the law. And what they needed is what we have because 2,000 years ago, the divine king was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless, perfect life, obeying God's law in every aspect. He taught God's law with authority. He was rejected by the religious leaders. He was subjected to a mock trial. He was robed with a purple robe and crowned with a crown of thorns. He was placed on a cross underneath a sign that said, in irony, king of the Jews, he died on the cross for the sins of the world. He rose from the dead in victory, and he reigns over all creation. His name is Jesus. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And apart from him, our lives will be moral and spiritual chaos. We'll always do what's right in our own eyes. Apart from Jesus, you and I will always do what's right in our own eyes. But when Jesus is king, when we trust Jesus, when we follow Jesus, our sins are forgiven, our hearts are made new, his righteousness becomes ours, his obedience is ours. We live differently, not perfectly, but differently because Jesus is King, Savior, and Lord. And when King Jesus rules our hearts, we obey his commands because we love him. We serve him because he served and gave his life a ransom for us. We listen to him and follow him because he's the way, the truth, and the life. We rest in him because nothing can ever take him away from us or us away from him. Friends, the cure to twisted religion is King Jesus. Just Jesus, only Jesus, always Jesus. God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his humble life. We thank you for his death on the cross. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for his lordship. Thank you for the fact that he gives us new hearts. He empowers us by his spirit. We are grateful for Jesus. God, I pray that this morning you would help each of us keep Jesus at the center, that we would love him, that we would obey him, that we would cling to him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.